the residential real estate market actually could be one of the stronger points that helps pull the country out of uh, economic recession opposed to a, uh, a weak spot in the, in the economy that, that pulls us deeper into a recession. And ultimately, it seems like that thesis, that theory is, is really starting to play out. And when you look at the, the health of the residential real estate market, you see that the biggest driver of continued market growth is, is demographics. So like, what is the age of your population? Are they forming households? And is there demand? And ultimately, the demand wave has been primed for 2020 through 2024 to be incredible years for the residential real estate market. And this, the COVID-19 pandemic didn't derail that demand. So ultimately people do need a place to live. And, and as you mentioned in the question, when you're spending more time at home, you realize that a stay during a stay-at-home order, home has never been more important. Hello everyone, my name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me on another episode of The Fort. I have Clayton Collins, CEO of HousingWire.com and editor of Lending Life with me today. I met Clayton through Twitter actually, where I've met a lot of friends lately and we've connected over kind of real estate and what's going on in that world. So today we're gonna cover uh, his journey um, as the CEO of Housing Wire, kind of what it's like to, to run a media business, and then really dive into kind of the housing industry and what's going on now and uh, what Clayton's thinking about as we kind of emerge forward. So Clayton, thank you for joining me. Chris, thank you for having me. It's a uh, it's fun to be a guest on one of these. I'm I'm also the host of our Housing Wire's Housing News podcast, and uh, I'm typically the the host and the interviewer. So it's kind of fun to be on the the other side. So really do appreciate the invitation. I love it. Well, I'm going to do my best to uh, live up to podcast standards to a fellow uh, interviewer. <laughs> um, so let's just start with kind of your story. You know, I know you were an investment banker before Housing Wire. Just kind of your story kind of leading up to Housing Wire, and then we'll talk about what Housing Wire is. Yeah, so I actually started my career in, in retail banking at Citigroup. I was in a management training program. So I uh, didn't really realize it at the time, but an, an excellent platform to kind of learn about general management managing people and sales and marketing at a at a pretty early stage of my career. So I got started at City in New York in a retail branch training program and kind of went on to lead some sales and marketing programs at a at a national level before going down that investment banking path. And it's uh, kind of funny in hindsight, but those those first few years of my career were probably actually the the most valuable and kind of preparing me for for what was to come. What kind of led the decision to leave the banking world and purchase a media company? Yeah, so I after City, I went back to business school, um, went down that investment banking recruiting path, and ended up at Royal Bank of Canada in uh, in the generalist M and A group. So got to, got a chance to work on deals across a, a lot of different verticals, but but fell in pretty close with a group of bankers who were doing a lot of media advisory deals. Um, worked on a lot of sell sides of. Uh, kind of small, mid-sized media companies and got some exposure to the the operators of those businesses during that period. I was just really 
interested in what happens after a deal. Like, so you're a, you're a banker, you create this pitch deck, you do all the analysis, you talk about the future, what's to come. And uh-huh. I, I know, uh, I know you've had Brent Bishore on the podcast before <laughs> and Brent would probably say, Oh, that's BS, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tear the projections page out of the book. But, um, I, I was the one doing those projections for a bit and, uh, you, you close the deal Everybody goes out to a big celebratory dinner. And then as an advisor, you don't really see what happens after that. And uh, as a junior banker, I was just hungry to see what happened after the transaction. After kind of doing my hand as a, in, in retail at City and then a few years of corporate investment banking at RBC, I kind of was just more interested in the, the entrepreneurial career path and, and started looking for looking for ways to, to pursue a more entrepreneurial path and uh, came across the, the idea of entrepreneurship through acquisition and the, specifically the search fund model and uh, decided this is this is for me. This is what I'm going to do. And uh, started started networking with people, uh, met a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who had were in the process of searching for businesses to acquire or had acquired businesses through the search model and really felt a connection both to that that path as something that kind of leveraged my my skill sets in the in the best way and as somebody who really wanted a path to entrepreneurship but didn't necessarily have that million or billion dollar idea of something to start the the path of going to, to hunt for a uh, existing entity that was profitable and successful and and had an opportunity to continue growing with the right leadership and capital structure was just really appealed to me i went down that path so you're the first guest I've had that actually that found their business through a search fund. Can you tell me a little bit about how you kind of set that relationship up and how how long it took you and maybe like what that experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. So I initially started learning about the search model in, in business school back in in 2011. And uh, at that time, and I went to business school at Duke, which didn't have the kind of the, the strongest path of entrepreneurship or acquisition that, that, that we didn't have a class dedicated to it like you see at some of the other business schools today so it wasn't something that I, it was something that was attractive to me but like I didn't know that it was necessarily like a realistic path to follow I went down that investment banking path before really realizing hey I can I can do this and as I, I started networking with with folks that I went down the path, I realized that, all right, one, I, I need to build some relationships here. I need to need to network my way into having doors I can open for capital and doors I can open for, for advisory. And what I found was a, a really inclusive and accepting community of people who believe in this idea of um, acquiring and operating and growing lower middle market businesses. And as the result, as how my investor group came together was a, a group of really experienced search fund investors of which I knew none of before I started going down this path. So it was a, uh, it was really fortunate that I was able to kind of network my way into a, a group of, of folks who uh, were supportive of the idea and appreciated my, my background with some general management as well as transaction experience to, to kind of get the path, get the ball rolling. And did you, when you like approached them, did you tell them that you would be looking for a media business like Housing Wire or was it kind of a blank slate? You were open to kind of any business? Yeah, so the search model has, has evolved a lot in the last eight or nine years. But the in, at that time, it seemed like the what was working best was a, a generalist approach to looking at transactions. And uh, so I definitely had some focus areas, but 
B2B media for real estate was, was not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was very interested in the real estate and financial services world. Knew I wasn't going to go acquire a bank. So he had to look kind of like the, the services and solutions businesses, the, the B2B business models around the, those verticals. And those were some of my focus areas from, from the earliest days. But I definitely spent time in niches that I didn't even know existed prior to, to starting down the, the path of search. How long was your search and how many businesses did you take, I'd call like a good look at? Yeah, so uh, I I pretty much used like, so the model is designed around like a two-year search process. I think I used 22 months. Like I used the the search period. I reached out to, I think it was about 2,000 businesses over the course of my search with three to 400 kind of meaningful conversations and uh, a couple dozen deals that we kind of got NDAs executed on and and took a look under the, the hood and a handful of, um, not even a handful, probably like four signed LOIs over the course of the process. So I, I took a definitely not like the the most shotgun approach. I, I had some focus in my search. I've talked to searchers and and other people who do entrepreneurial acquisition and lower middle market deals that take a much broader approach. Also, take talk to people who take a much more kind of rifle shot approach. I was I was probably somewhere in between, but um, ultimately had the opportunity to to spend serious time in fifteen or so niches or kind of sub verticals of industries and, and get to know those spaces really well. A few of them, which you you get in and say like, hey, this this area is already consolidated. There's no opportunity or or and one area that I really liked, this area is too fragmented and I can't find anybody of, of scale that's ready to transact. It, you learn quickly what characteristics to, to look for in, in an industry to know if it's a, an area you can get a deal done and um, if it's a fit for kind of the, the size and characteristics that, that work best for a, a first-time operator to, to come into. That's awesome, dude. Two thousand businesses uh, in two years. <laughs> a lot of, so, I mean, so th- this is like going back on my my first experience at, at Citigroup. I ran a program called the the Lead Management System, which was their retail bank outbound calling program. So uh, I was a cold caller. I was um I, I loved getting on the phone. That was my that was my process. Definitely sent a lot of emails too, but. Uh, cold calling specifically in a few industries that were not as sophisticated in terms of technology, like getting on the phone was by far the best way to engage uh, founders and operators. And so that was a, that was, I think of that as a competitive advantage. Yep. Now that's, we buy real estate uh, at my company and we, we've never participated in an auction or a, a bid. It's it, we cold call day long to owners and sellers. It's, it's the most effective way, I think. Yep. Okay, so you find Housing Wire. Was that something that maybe you found early on that you ended up closing later, or, or how, why was Housing Wire the one? And can you walk us through a little bit of like how that transaction went down? Yeah, so thousands of phone calls and emails, and uh, I was introduced to the founders of Housing Wire through a, a friend of mine in New York. So um, all all that effort, and ultimately the the, the deal ended up closing on comes through a um, comes through an introduction from somebody in my network, which I you always appreciate, um, and you know that 
all that that groundwork of of deal sourcing gets you gets you smarter and sharper. So when when actionable opportunities to hit your plate, you're ready. And that was ultimately the the scenario here. And there was a, a few other kind of fortuitous scenarios there. My my dad is a is a mortgage originator. He's a, a broker and spent some years in community banks. And he's been a reader of Housing Wire since the company was founded in in 2008. I didn't really pay much attention to to exactly the the trade mags that, that yeah. he was reading um, back in that time as I was kind of coming out of college. But when I told him like, hey, I'm talking to this company in the mortgage industry, they uh, publish daily news, like housing wire and like, <laughs> like n- n- knew it instantly, which really kind of helped me get up to speed and understand the competitive uh, competitive landscape pretty quickly. But once I got to know the founders, we had a uh, we had a great relationship, got got along really well. The business was founded by by two gentlemen who who ran hard for for eight years and were ready for their their next adventure. And they founded the the business kind of at a mid- midpoints in their their career, and were excited to have somebody bring some new energy and management style to the to the company and uh, ultimately uh, found a good cultural fit between myself and the the founders and the organization and uh, got it done. How long from the meeting to the closing? It was a pretty efficient process, to tell you the truth. I think we were probably five months from like first call to close and and like ran a pretty clean 90, 95 day like LOI and diligence process. So in terms of like the the grand scheme of of deal hairiness, uh, this one was um was was pretty pretty smooth. Was a lot of that because they were like ready to be sold and had kind of prepared to be sold or uh, and kind of had all it all organized or just because it went smooth for other reasons. Yeah, there was a degree of that, like um, be, being ready to to do a deal, but there was also uh, just kind of the 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 personality of the of the former CEO. Well, like he would, uh, you know, put in a diligence request at, at five o'clock East Coast, and he just flipped me back an email at two a.m. So he was uh, he didn't he never push things off. He uh, he, he he muscled through, and uh, I think that's you don't always find that in in founder transition deal processes so like he came in with a with a lot of dedication to to supporting a a smooth process and ultimately the the business performed and it hit its numbers i think like especially the the, the where we are in, in this economic cycle that's a little bit harder to find in 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 deal processes but back in 2016 and we closed the deal the business was hitting numbers pipeline looked good traffic numbers were good so it uh it, we didn't throw up too many red flags in the diligence process when you closed, did they did the founders stay on or were they gone the day of closing? <laughs> we had a planned transition that actually went fairly smooth besides one one hiccup. Um, I, I've joked with people about this before, so hopefully the founder doesn't uh, fret too much when I tell the story. But uh, about two weeks after we closed the transaction, he dropped 225 pounds on his right foot in a weightlifting class. Oh. And, <laughs> and uh, what the doctor ordered him to keep his uh, head over or his foot over his uh, his heart for, uh, I think it was like six weeks. So uh, our transition, or at least the in-person component of that transition, got expedited very quickly. So um, I still had him as a resource uh, on the phone and email, but that in-person transition time was definitely shorter than I expected. His his partner though was our our former head of sales, and he we did a thoughtful nine month transition there that that couldn't have gone smoother. And we uh, my first executive hires are now our our VP of sales, and he helped get her transition into the role, and that that all went very smooth. That's awesome. 
can you just paint or I'll ask a couple more questions. I, I love this kind of story of how it all came to be. Have you made any other acquisitions since buying this one, bolt-ons, or this has been your only one so far? Yeah, we, we've done a, a couple very small deals, kind of more like in-kind deals to, to add on add on content and kind of acquire scenarios. We do look at transactions, and but having, um, haven't gotten the, the kind of the right strategic add-on across the finish line yet. But we're we're really interested in expanding our reach, kind of at the not not within the housing wire brand, but under our like corporate umbrella of HW Media, into other areas of the financial services industry and and uh, of the of the real estate world. So like we're we're pretty interested in um, expanding into commercial and and multifamily as uh, and we're organically going into the real estate agent and, and broker world as well as the fintech world. So uh, I, hopefully when we if we ever do a follow up to this conversation, maybe, maybe on the housing news podcast, we'll have some um, we'll have some news to share on on that strategy. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll do a part two. Um, <laughs> I love it. Sounds like something might be brewing. How do you value a media business? And like, how do you value? You mentioned some of these like in kind deals. Like, how do you even value something like that? How would you value Housing Wire when you bought it? Yeah, I mean, we th- can take a methodology that's just really similar to the the lower middle market um, private equity world. I mean, we're we're valuing off of a multiple of, of EBITDA. Housing Wire was and and is a a profitable business um, with a sustainable EBITDA margin. So we're we're valuing off a multiple of EBITDA, and that's the same way we we'd look at any add-ons. So uh, we're we're not in the business of. Um, the venture capital fueled media that that you see um, in the consumer media world, digital media world. We're not in the business of unprofitable media assets. We're we're in the business of operating a a sustainable, profitable business. And we can grow over time and and hire people and serve our audience and serve our clients. And that's the path we'll continue on. So we'll always um, take a a pretty responsible approach to a a multiple EBITDA that we we can finance with some cash from the balance sheet as well as um, the right amount of equity and, and debt to, to do something sustainable. I love it. Can you paint uh, just a quick picture of maybe what Housing Wire, maybe size-wise, looked like when you bought it and where you are today four years later? Yeah, so we when we bought the business, uh, we were... We had a- I think it was 14 employees after the after the founders transitioned out. So uh, at, at that size org, um, <laughs> there's very very little uh, duplication of roles. Everybody wore everybody wore multiple hats, and uh, still that way to an extent. But but we're at uh, 31 full time employees right now. So uh, we've about just about doubled the the headcount of the business, and um, and in terms of traffic, uh, have, have kind of quadrupled in size. Um, it's a uh, kind of it varies every month, but this year has just been incredibly massive in terms of our newsletter subscriber growth as well as our paid member growth, which is something that's really exciting. How is the how's the team structured? Like, do you have a uh, a group that's kind of getting all of the, the data and, and analyzing everything and then a team that's that's writing or how how's a media company like yours kind of structured? Yeah, we're, we're primarily kind of broken out by by content and and the business side of the house so we uh 
our editor-in-chief. Um, it's one of our team members named Sarah Wheeler. She's been with the company for, for seven years now, and she leads our, our newsroom, which fully staffed is about seven journalists, as well as our um, sponsored content team and our, our events team, which today events is kind of just uh, all of us wearing multiple hats. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not, not necessarily a de- dedicated role. Um, myself and our marketing manager and our editor-in-chief and our head of sales are all kind of the, the event team. So we're we have the kind of the content side of the house, and then and then sales and marketing and, and client success, and uh, so it's it's about it's about equal in terms of headcount when you all of our content roles and audience dev roles, and then our sales, marketing, and and operations. And is, does like a journalist are they given like a quota of a certain amount of articles they need to write each week, or or how like how do you know that the you're fully ready for a, another day's worth of content? Yeah, so I mean, no, we don't. We don't run like per person quotas. We do run. Uh, we're a pretty newsletter centric business, so you, you want to you run a newsroom to make sure that you're one covering the most important topics that are happening in the industry. You're, you're not doing fluff, but at the same time, making sure that you uh, <laughs> you have new content to put out every day. So it's a it's a fine balance, but we definitely don't do assignments. One of our uh, one of our kind of ethos is for from a content creation perspective, it's not fun to write, it's not fun to read. And we really do try to empower the reporters and editors to to kind of chart their own path and, and find the the beats and the the stories that are uh, most interesting to them. And you know, sometimes that takes a little direction to, to get people head, headed in the right way. But ultimately, our, our team ends up being pretty autonomous and, and motivated <laughs> to find the, the big stories. Um, I think that's one of the most fun parts of, of media is uh, you can have a, as a relatively small organization, can have a really big impact. And it's definitely motivating to be the the first media company or the first journalist on a beat and, and on a story. And, and that keeps the team pretty, I think pretty is an understatement, very motivated to, to be on top of what's happening in the industry. That's awesome. Maybe this is more general question just about the industry in general, but you know, there's lots of newsletters now, uh, free ones, paid ones. Um, you know, I feel like the newsletter revolution I don't know if it's like re-emerging and or if it ever was was gone like early on back like in 2008, 2009. But now newsletters are, you know, I subscribe to a ton of them. How do you convince someone that they should pay for your service versus maybe like a free housing data newsletter? Yeah, so we so all of our all of our newsletters are are complimentary or, or free to the audience. Um, we do have a, a paid membership program called HW Plus, and the the reason for that is so we can go deeper than the daily news cycle. So uh, we our, our daily news has, has always been free to our audience. It's a really hard reader benefit to, to take away and shift to that hard paywall model. So we decided to do a what we call a plus one. So hey, instead of taking something away from our audience, let's, let's give them something more. And we invested in uh, uh, promoting journalists from within our org and recruiting some talented journalists from outside of our org to go a level deeper on that daily news cycle and write the, the perspective and analysis and data-centric journalism that you just can't find elsewhere. And that's what we put behind a, a paywall or, or make exclusive to our members. So yeah, I think it's, um, I don't know, there's a lot of businesses having success, especially in the Substack world of, uh, of paid newsletters. But uh, right now, our approach is uh, 
we want to serve the industry with the best information possible. And we, we do that right now at, at scale through our, our, our daily update, which serves the, you know, the whole mortgage and real estate industry, as well as two niche newsletters for loan originators and, and real estate agents that are, that are free and complimentary. And uh, we, we hope that we're serving them to a degree that they want to subscribe as paid members and, and take part in that deeper perspective that we're, that we're publishing every day. That's a little bit different than what you get elsewhere. I love it. So your tar- is your target market, it is B2B. So it's, it's lenders, it's originators. What, like who's your target market outside of yeah, them? We- so we, we write for the we write for the housing professional and there's a lot of obviously a lot of sub niches in, inside of there. Our core audience was built around executive titles and mortgage lending, servicing, secondary markets and like the real estate brokerage world. And over the last three years we've really expanded more in toward into what we call the, the tip of the spear audiences, so our loan originators and real estate agents. In in that process, we also attract a pretty large number of of home builders and technology companies and uh, title agents and uh, folks from the the insurance and risk world that that have a skin in the game in housing um, in the investment community. So the the audience gets relatively broad, but for the most part, we're we're talking about a um, and complete focus on the the professional categories that have a, that have skin in the game in housing. Yep. Well, let's get into kind of housing and really what's kind of going on now. It's funny if we had done this 30 days ago, the conversation might be different than it is today. The world's uh, kind of moving quick, but maybe just around lending, like what's the environment like right now for housing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It might not have been that different. I uh, From your, your episode with Brent Bishore, you guys were talking about the how Main Street and Wall Street couldn't be more um, separated right now. And uh, I think the I think Dow's up another 500 points today, approaching 26,000. And it, it still feels like that, that divide in reality is pretty big between Main Street and Wall Street. But the one thing that has stayed consistent is the demand for um, demand in housing. So the, the mortgage industry has been it definitely been impacted and had some really tough weeks coming out of March and the first few weeks of April, but has maintained a pretty kind of healthy and robust pipeline of, of refi and purchase activity uh, over the last 75 days. And we, we came into COVID with, with mortgage interest rates on the 30-year fixed rate financing already in the 3.5% range. So we're already talking about relatively relative historic lows. But when the... The Fed started buying and the 10 year started falling and in March, uh, rates kept kept going down. And that just really fueled a lot of refinance activity that for for a minute was really hard for the mortgage industry to digest. And there was actually more capacity than lenders were prepared to to service and and uh, and meet consumer demand, especially at the same time that they're shifting their teams from in office jobs to, to remote jobs, dealing with the technology, uh, or let's just call it a lack of technology investment for a lot of firms, yeah. and trying to figure out how do you how do you do this in a uh, socially distanced environment, and then getting loans closed. The uh, like barely anybody in this industry was ready to to do e notary or e close, or had to figure out workarounds to actually close transactions in a world where you can't go into a title office or don't want to go into a title office. 
So the, the industry went through a period of uh, kind of indigestion of what do we do with this demand? And there was a period where um, loan originators were, were pretty frustrated as the 30-year the average rate in the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was not moving in lockstep with with the 10-year. And while, while rates should have been dropping quickly into low threes, high twos, um, they were actually floating upward because lenders were pr- were pricing to to make to meet their bandwidth. And, and at the same time, dealing with uncertainty related to forbearance. So the CARES Act had a, had a lot of positive impacts in the end, but it came together really freaking quickly. And mortgage servicers, and particularly uh, a lot of the non-banks um, that are retaining more of their their servicing volume, were very uncomfortable with not understanding what forbearance meant to to loans in their portfolio and new loans that they were closing, and the the value or the ability to sell a mortgage that is just closed where the borrower does not make the first payment due to forbearance is an extremely risky asset to have on the balance sheet that could have could have sunk lenders with liquidity problems. So there was this period of just like, what the heck is going on? And just hunting for questions. So um, there was a four, three, four weeks there where everybody hung on every single word that came out of uh, the FHFA's or Mark, Mark Calabria's mouth, just like dying. Like, all right, what's he going to say next? What are Fannie and Freddie going to buy? What aren't they going to buy? And that was a that was a really scary period for a lot of people in the industry. At the same time, they're still dealing with this crazy amount of refi demand. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it was a it was a weird couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll I'll never forget kind of the end of March, early April. It was it was a crazy couple of weeks. Um, kind of looking forward, I mean, I keep he- hearing as I look at asset classes, housing is positioned to continue doing really well. People are, you know, I think they realize the importance of a home. Um, they're probably spending more money around the house than they are maybe on trips or you know going on vacations. I uh, just keep hearing it's positioned to do extremely well. Is that kind of how you're feeling about it coming out of this relative to maybe other types of real estate? Yeah, the, I mean, some of the the smarter economists and leaders in the industry spend a lot of time in the residential real estate market, spend a lot of time talking about how not all recessions look like the last one. And I think there's a period at the national level and at the lender level where there's some fear where, hey, we all just went through this a decade ago and real estate got clobbered, um, firms went out of business. Will that be the same? Or are these dynamics the same? And the dynamics just weren't the same. This this was a uh, this was a, a health pandemic turned into a, a economic crisis, not a not a housing crisis turned into a financial crisis. And I, I think that it took a little while for homeowners, prospective homeowners, the capital markets to to digest like what this was going to look like from a residential real estate perspective. But with a with a little thinking, a little analysis, you start to see that the residential real estate market actually could be one of the stronger points that helps pull the country out of uh, economic recession, opposed to a uh, a weak spot in the in the economy that that pulls us deeper into a recession. And ultimately, it seems like that is that that thesis, that theory is is really starting to play out. And when you look at the the health of the residential real estate market. You see, the biggest driver of continued market growth is is demographics. So, like, what is the age of your population? Are they forming households? And is there demand? 
And ultimately, the demand wave has been primed for 2020 through 2024 to be incredible years for the residential real estate market. And this, the COVID-19 pandemic didn't derail that demand. So ultimately, people do need a place to live. And, and as you mentioned in the question, when you're spending more time at home, you realize that a stay during a stay-at-home order, home has never been more important. You ultimately see people who had that homeownership, given they they weren't unemployed and they and they weren't furloughed and they didn't see massive economic hardship. Some of those homeowner homeownership decisions actually were accelerated, and you see uh, like dual-income couples that were living in apartments in cities deciding, all right, it's time. I need that home office. I need that extra bedroom. We're moving to the burbs or we're, we're changing locations inside of the, the Metroplex if you're here in Dallas. And we did see and we are seeing a lot of that acceleration. And um, and where we are right now in the in the first week of June is dealing with a, a, a pretty notable amount of pent-up demand. And what we've seen for the last the last six weeks, and, and we watched mortgage application data pretty closely. As we've seen, we've seen six weeks of week over week growth in in mortgage application numbers, and the numbers that came out yesterday from the Mortgage Bankers Association for purchase mortgage apps showed an eighteen percent spike. Not not over prior week, but over last year. So we're actually even seeing more purchase demand right now than we saw in twenty nineteen. So like the like we've completely muscled through the COVID-19 pandemic from a residential real estate demand perspective. So are you able to track kind of uh, like what markets and price points that that demand is is hitting probably more than others? Um, like which maybe states or is there certain like housing price points or, or age demographics that stand out to you? Yeah, so like I mean, like everything in real estate location matters. It's it's hard. We we cover this on a national level, and it's certainly not not every market is is treated fairly here. I think uh, like New York City still seeing some. This is still in some pretty intense pain from the COVID nineteen pandemic, and uh, and that that market is not quite back yet. But other parts of the country, like like San Diego. Austin, Milwaukee have, have never been hotter. And we're actually already seeing bidding wars pop up in those markets as we see what, what has traditionally been a spring home buying season shift to the summer. And uh, and as people start looking for houses, uh, new new inventory is coming online. So um, that that's that's still the the biggest challenge with the mark we have 22 percent less um homes or uh existing homes on the mls as we had last year this time so that's a that's a pretty big inventory constraint that the the market will have to, to work through but and well I, this is probably not not a symbol of the healthiest market but home prices are up seven or eight percent and across the country so that that's a that's a uh that's a symptom of lack of inventory would probably be if we're talking about just like what's best for the housing economy, um, a little bit lower year-over-year growth rate and in, in home value would probably be a little bit healthier. It definitely doesn't help affordability to see growth at that clip, especially during a, uh, a potential economic recession, recession and pandemic. But yeah, so there, there's hot spots in in the U.S. in terms of demand. So uh, the big the big three that we've been watching this week are San Diego, Milwaukee, and and Austin. But the one, so you, you asked about price point too, and it's definitely still like the conforming mortgage is the is the product that we're getting done right now. The the jumbo market is pretty locked up. So 
any any mortgage over five hundred ten thousand for most markets is um, close close to impossible to find. I think a few of the big depository banks are still doing jumbo, but uh, that's that's definitely making like the. It depends where you live, right? You're in California and you can't do jumbo. I mean, that's that's pretty painful. But in, in everything's parts of a Dallas, jumbo out there. Exactly. Um, and uh, and it, but in parts of Dallas and Fort Worth, it's the same way. But you go out to the 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 burbs and you can you can do conforming mortgages all day long, and um, that that seems to that that's that's what the mortgage market is waiting for. And when I when I talk to loan originators, they they ask about two things. They said, Hey, have you heard anything about jumbo? When's jumbo coming back? And they asked about non-QM because, uh, the non-qualified mortgage product is, is getting a lot of demand right now from, um, from self-employed borrowers and, and people without kind of that traditional W2 income. That's, I think that's kind of where we stand. Yeah. Do you foresee kind of a wave of supply hitting the market for maybe a lot of folks that decided not to list and kind of wait and see what happened finally getting comfortable to start listing or? Yeah, that, I mean, I'm I'm hearing that anecdotally. I don't have data to back it up, but we're we're definitely starting to see new listings come online in, in the last three weeks. Um, we'll be covering that. So if anyone's listening that <laughs> wants the updated data, let's stay tuned to Housing Wire. Wire will definitely have some updated stats coming from Redfin and and Realtor.com and, and Zillow in the coming weeks. But we're we're hearing that anecdotally. Um, we're hearing it from realtors that their their clients who wanted to sell and upgrade or move in the spring pulled from the market and delayed that decision. They they fully anticipate those kind of that. Just like there's pent up demand, there's also some we're getting an, anecdotes of pent up supply. And so there there could be a there could be a match of of supply and demand in in these summer months. Yep. And and you kind of said earlier the spring buying season's kind of been pushed to kind of summer early fall is going to be the hot part of this year. Yeah, that's that's what we're seeing and the, uh, these purchase apps are are definitely supporting that. Is there anything just due to the, to COVID and we kind of talked about, you know, everybody going remote and figuring out e-notary, are there is there any kind of uh has it shined the light on anything that's going to be innovation kind of within the housing industry that we're probably not going to go back to the way we were doing it? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of teased out a few of the things there. I mean, we have been calling this the the great acceleration. I think I've heard that term when it comes to to e-commerce and a lot of other technology adoption across for consumers as well as businesses. But that great acceleration definitely applies to the the mortgage and real estate world as well. The mortgage industry has been talking about a, a digital mortgage product for the better part of the the last decade, but due to, to state-by-state state, uh, regulatory requirements and, um, and w- lender kind of willingness to, to invest and, and be a first mover. That's been slow. Like the, the industry hasn't, I mean, I think real estate has a, has a wrap for kind of being a little bit slow to innovate, but this is, that's being accelerated right now. And I think a lot of folks who said that they were ready to do e-close and said that they had already signed contracts with, a, with an e-notary vendor weren't fully adopted or scaled across the organization and uh over the last six weeks that's there that's been that's been forced if you um there was a few weeks or I mean, it's, it's still happening i talked to originators they say yeah my lender my title company tells me they can do an e-close but then they say hey swing by our office and like pull up to the window and do a drive-by closing and i mean that, that's great maybe it reduces some of the COVID risk but ultimately when we get past this pandemic 
I'm, and I'm already there. You don't want to go to a title office to do a closing. There's no reason if your state allows it. I'll, I'll go back to the regulatory side. Right. <laughs> state allows it. There's no. There's no reason you can't do a e-notary closing and and close your mortgage from the comfort of or close your home purchase from the the comfort of your home. It's consumer demand is is going to force it. it it's just it's going to happen. There's just there's no way that consumers are going to be comfortable with um, the way things used to be done after they kind of get a taste for for what technology can actually enable. Do you have any insight into residential construction costs going up, down, you know, kind of still staying the same throughout all this? Yeah, um, kind of going back to a lot of the National Association of Home Builders statements from the fall and, and winter from, I think, Rob Dietz, their chief economist, uh, they were still pointing at rising home costs, and I think as we kind of watch what's what's happening at on the on the international or global stage right now, any trade restrictions or trade taxation is it's just going to make home building even even more expensive, or, or or at least not put downward pressure on home building prices. Labor kind of continues to be a problem when we talk to to home builders. That's um that's the first thing they point at is is labor. So we we. On the positive side, capital is available, mortgage financing is cheap, but the cost to build is, uh, at least from the metrics I've seen and the stories I'm being told, it doesn't seem to be really going anywhere right now. Y'all cover fintech and, and RE tech, and I'm just curious if there's any kind of companies uh, that maybe you've had your eye on or, or now have your eye on because of this that might be interesting in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, I think the the companies that have been front and center and talking about on the mortgage side uh, and, and e-close and, and digital mortgage product are are becoming much more interesting right now. And uh, as, as the market forces that adoption. So, I mean, there's on the e-notarized side, like notarized.com and notary cam and e-close, there's SnapDocs and DocMagic and CoreLogic and SimpleFile, who is owned by MERS. And, and as we as we start to see FHFA is going to get comfortable with allowing the GSEs to buy mortgages on the secondary market that have been e-closed, so I think the adoption of those vendor services is going to be is going to be fast and um, fast and fast and quick. And uh, it's uh, that that's what we'll be watching really closely because there's ultimately just like in real estate in the mortgage landscape, a lot of lenders have are going to be slower to develop their own solutions. And people have certainly tried it. And ultimately, it seems like uh, uh, you, you try to build it in-house, then you go then you go find the right vendor partner that actually can do it right. And uh, the vendor partners that have been, and the software companies that have been working on this for the better part of the last decade, I think you're going to see a, kind of a rapid ascent in transaction volume growth in the in the coming years. And that's what we'll be watching pretty closely. There's um, a lot of uh, disruptors coming into the, the real estate brokerage market as well as the mortgage market that are trying to take the processes completely online. And I think that's really interesting and puts pressure on both the real estate agent as well as the mortgage originator. But at this point, the market share growth of any of those disruptors is kind of uh, underwhelming. So you watch and um, and you learn, and maybe they become a threat at some point. But but right now, um, we're not seeing uh, on the, at least on the mortgage side um, any of the disruptors steal market share at a at a clip that has the incumbent mortgage lenders shaking in their boots. Yeah. Now um, you've heard for a long time that. Like people are going to go after the margin that brokers get their commissions and 
you just haven't really seen it play out. Compass raised billions of dollars, but I, I still feel like they're more of a traditional brokerage with that provide a few tech tools, but I have not seen anything that makes them, you know, really any more stand out any more than a lot of the folks. So uh, I agree with you there. On single family rental development, we own a site here in Fort Worth that, you know, seven, 80, 90 days ago, we thought uh, might be multifamily or or might be single family housing. And in the last four or five uh, weeks, we've had five or six single family rental developers approach. And it seems like they're coming out of the woodworks. Uh, com- really big companies that were traditionally home building companies are now starting single family rental lines. Big multifamily groups are adding it in. 08 and 09, we kind of proved that there were several great companies that were built buying thousands of existing single family homes and renting them. Do you have any insight on kind of single family rental and like what's happening there? And is this kind of going to be a next big kind of bull run in that sector? Yeah, I mean, we came into 2020 like with with Blackstone announcing their exit from Invitation Homes, if I, if I remember correctly. And I at the time, that didn't necessarily look like like the best feather in the cap for the SFR build, or build to rent space, but uh, I think there's probably some some demographic and market considerations that uh, are the reason for kind of you've seen a, a pickup in interest and in, from SFR builders. And if there's if people are interested in less dense environments and uh, apartment community with the with the community pool and game room and or pool table and office center like aren't as attractive because you you need a little space because you're working from home or you're you're social distancing that, that might be strong enough demographic and uh an inventory interest push to to give that that sfr market a, another bull run yeah that's uh that's, that's interesting to see the the pickup of interest in that property yeah it's been crazy and it's a lot of groups we already knew that never did it but they're now getting into it so I continue to hear like the average age of the first time home buyer continues to get pushed back as they rent longer or seek more flexibility through renting. Is that can gonna continue on? And is that do you have like an age through the data that you collect of like what's the average first time home buyer's age now? And is it continuing to get pushed back? Yeah, we so we were hearing well, actually so that that yeah, you're right, that age kept kept creeping back. And I think it was a, went to 32 to 33 to 34 tracking almost identically with the the average age of um household formation or, or folks getting married but we're this it's too early in the the COVID-19 cycle to see the, the impact on 2020 but I, I am hearing from from lenders that they're seeing inside of their origination volume that age starting to to creep back down on that same theory i talked about as um the acceleration of of home ownership for for folks that were living in multifamily or or dense environments that that might look look for something different there's a very good chance that is a if, if we don't see a major second or, or third wave here of um intense stay at home or shelter in place order that that trend might reverse itself and it might keep keep tracking with the age of of marriage and and, and keep getting pushed back but uh if i think as long as we stay in this environment where we have a certain degree of caution about our our personal health and and pandemic risk there's a very good chance that that gets pushed back up there's also the consideration that two other things at play here is that everybody 
is aware of where interest rates are right now. It's being talked about on, on every mainstream media outlet. Uh, every like on CNBC, the top story this morning was that um, purchase mortgage app data that I shared of being 18, 18% higher than, than last year. So uh, there's a lot of people who historically might not have been interested in the housing market or that are, are hearing either through the news or, or through their social networks or from their family members. And now it's a really good time to buy a home because you can get dirt cheap money. So there's a there's always a chance that that's a big proponent for for pushing up the the age of home ownership. And there's also the theory that jobs might not be as concentrated in certain metropolitan areas as as they once were because of this um, great acceleration of of remote work. And uh, I I lived in Manhattan before we acquired Housing Wire and, and moved to Dallas, and, and home ownership was was not in the cards anytime soon. Like we weren't, we, we, yeah. we were just like er- earning enough to, to pay for rent in the, in the city, not really thinking about uh, saving for a down payment on a condo, but you get outside of New York or, or LA or, or even, or even Dallas, you, uh, homeownership might become a little more attainable for, for people at an earlier stage in their life. So there's a, I think there's a few major demographic trends related to the, related to work and health that could really impact what the, what the profile of first-time homeowners looks like, but I don't know. I think it's a little, a little early to put a stake in the ground. That's going to keep trending down. I think if we if we muscle through this and see uh and see a, a therapeutic or a or a vaccine, we might be you know we might just erase these three months and and uh, or, or a couple of years and hop butt right back on the trend line we were on. But the way things are looking right now, there's some serious cultural changes that that might change the the face of homeownership. Maybe one just quick question, uh, you know, back in, you know, 20 years ago, as people were maybe making money or retiring, the the trend was building these big over overbuilt houses with lots of square footage and they're super expensive to operate. And every trend I've seen is smaller, is better, more efficient, more affordable. Do you just have like anything you could share on that, that like data wise, that things are getting smaller and that's what people want and that this like slew of kind of mansions that were built in the late nineties and eighties and early two thousands aren't going to have a lot of buyers for them uh, when they come to market. I'm not, I'm not sitting on fresh data right now on the, on trends and average square feet for, for new construction. Uh, there, there has been a lot of talk in home builder circles in the last month of if, uh, if all new construction should have a home office or potentially even two home offices. And uh, there's also been a lot of thinking that multi-generational living could increase as, uh, as senior living and senior care facilities become less attractive due to some of the COVID outbreaks we've seen uh, in the last two months. So I, I think those are uh, the really interesting data points to track over the course of the year. But I mean, you know how kind of slow moving new construction is like we're, we're still in learning phase right now. And uh, I think it's probably a good six months, year, 18 months before there's really meaningful data that will show how this global health pandemic and crisis impacted the the, the construction market in terms of did consumer interest or home buyer interest really change? Or was this kind of um, short-term thinking and everybody snapped out of it and realized they're going back to an office and realized they don't want their parents living with them and, um, and uh, <laughs> went back on the path we're on? Well, if you listen to Elon Musk's recent podcast with Joe Rogan, uh, he thinks it's pretty short-term thinking, so we'll see what happens. Um, (laughs) It was an interesting episode. All right, I got two more questions. This has been awesome. 
I read an article really early on that I thought was interesting. There's thousands of people now that own single family homes or townhomes or condos that are specifically for Airbnb. And obviously Airbnb and hotels have been hit really, really hard. And there was just the thought that there's going to be this huge wave of defaults because most of those owners are kind of mom and pops that don't, you know, have large reserves. Have you seen anything? Are you privy to any of that? Like what's going to happen with all these Airbnb homes? So Airbnb has 850,000 whole house listings. And I'm, I'm like, it couldn't be a better time question. We literally published an article on this today. <laughs> that is a, uh, actually, I guess it was last night. Um, 850,000 whole house listings, which is 0.8% of the, the nation's total housing stock of single family homes. And there's been a lot of talk about, well, if Airbnb gets decimated, um, owners might might go into default um, or put their, their homes in the market. Would that be a flood of inventory that actually might create supply for this wave of demand that's coming? Ultimately, you talk to the National Association of Realtors, and with 1.5 million active listings in the U.S. right now, 850,000 new listings coming on top of that would be a massive increase. But there's no way they're all going to come on at once, and there's no way everyone's going to choose to sell. So the, the ultimate feel across the industry is right now that this like theory of a tsunami of Airbnb homes coming to market the, or, or coming into default um, it is probably not going to be as pronounced or felt by the market as, as some might expect. My theory is that there's going to be pockets of the country that it actually does make an impact in, particularly in second home and vacation markets in parts of the country or in, uh, in proximity to parts of the country that were really hit, hit really hard by COVID. But at a national level, I don't don't see it being a kind of a major impact on the market. And this I mean, this isn't like backed by data yet, but what what I'm seeing from um uh I think I got forgetting the name, not not Airbnb, but one of their competitors is saying they've never seen higher demand for uh single family vacation homes um this summer than in, in their history. And that that kind of backs that's <laughs> backed up by by our thinking. I mean, we're, we're renting a, a lake house for a week this summer. We're not going to a hotel. We're not flying anywhere. Um, it's a, uh, a a single family vacation home you can rent and go in and uh, and wipe down and sanitize before you bring your family in. Sounds like a pretty good way to, to get away this summer. So um, I'm kind of curious if maybe changes in hospitality interest might actually be if not a boon, uh, at least a, a buffer for, for that market. Yep. My, I got family out in Seaside out in Florida right now, Seaside and Watercolor. And uh, they texted last night and said it's absolutely packed. Like everything's rented out. They opened, I guess, last week. And so the the single family, you know, it's all single family, you know, beach houses. And it was, uh, it was like a, it was last summer is basically what it said. So it was interesting to read. Yeah, places like Seaside are, I mean, are, are are driving vacations. Like most people aren't flying in for that. They're they're coming in from from Texas and the Alabama and Louisiana and parts of Florida. And like that's a hey, that's in the environment we're in. That seems like a um, if you're gonna go on vacation, you're gonna accept that amount of risk. Renting a house feels like a the most acceptable way to do it. All right, my last question: Is there anything that people aren't talking about or looking at that maybe they should be? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the big thing that 
that I like, that I don't think has been talked about enough, and this is kind of going impact housing, but going up a level is um is the Paycheck Protection Program. We're we're coming up in June and July on the end of a lot of companies' measurement period for the forgiveness of those programs, forget forgiveness of the loans. I'm watching and a little bit concerned that we're going to see a, a second wave of of layoff or furlough after that initial paycheck protection plan uh, forgiveness period is is calculated. And the why I, why I think about that and from my vantage point at, at Housing Wire is that the CARES Act has also created this this um, furlough program, which. Uh, in, in May was was rumored that may end at the end of May. That didn't happen. The program's still open. But if, if the window for mortgage forbearance closes and there's a second wave of layoffs, we could see a default wave of in the homeownership market. There's also the concern of a default wave on the on the end of a forbearance period. Now FHA FHFA is a lot better at defining ways that servicers can modify loans to avoid that. But that I'm concerned about the relationship between PPP and an additional wave of layoffs. Um, and I know there's been been talk of another, another plan or, or program coming out, uh, a second stimulus. But uh, but that's just that's something I'm watching, and I don't think it's got a lot of airtime quite yet. Yep. No, I I agree. I it was it was hearsay this morning in a conversation. Have no backing of this, but I was hearing this morning that uh, they might extend the deadline on the PPP through the end of the year. Um, I was talking to a banker that said, I was asking him if he's gearing up for the whole forgiveness side of this and if they were going to be busy. And he said he was hearing that um, it might be forgiven and that they're not going to require banks to uh, go through that whole, it's like a waste of time and resources and energy. And uh, there's a lot of political risk and, you know, the whole deal. So we'll see how it plays out. I think it's that's that's super smart to look at. Uh, June thirtieth will, you know, is a hard date for a lot of people. We'll see how it plays out. And we're already seeing that, and I think in the the airline industry that um, I think their their stimulus program expires on September thirtieth. And I know there's already airlines talking about massive cost reductions on October first. And uh, so at the I hate I'd hate to see that same thing happen in small business land. I agree. Clayton, this has been uh, it's been a great hour. Uh, I learned a ton today, and I really appreciate you uh, spending some time and, and sharing. This was this was fantastic. Oh, Chris, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm going to have to have you on the the Housing News podcast uh, this summer at some point, and and rifle back rifle some questions at you about the the commercial market. I would um, love I, to. I, I would love to. Maybe we can do it uh, in person, or uh, I can come over to Dallas for lunch or something. We can record or something. I'd love to do it. That, that sounds great. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.